Well, welcome back everyone to uh, the beginning of our 2016 fall speaker series. Uh, I think a lot of you know who I am, uh, Tom Perna, Director of Adult Evangelization and Catechesis here at the parish. Uh, I oversee this speaker series uh, and um, one of the things that Father had, we had talked about was giving a talk on Mary and the importance of the Blessed Mother in the Sacred Scriptures. So that's what today's talk is uh, focusing on. Um, so, um, so we're going to have a great, uh, a great lineup of speakers for this fall series. Uh, we're hoping to get, uh, you know, just uh, more speakers in from around the valley. I actually have all the spring speaker series for all of spring of 2017 all set as well already. So, um, so I've been working on that pretty much ahead of schedule. So, so today. I'm going to focus on the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Sacred Scriptures. Um, and I think this is, this is nothing really new. There's, there's nothing, I'm not coming up with anything in this talk that's, um, that's new. Um, I think you, you've got a lot of the church fathers uh, that draw from this information. That you know, I pulled stuff from the church fathers. Uh, there's other documents, uh, other, other Marianologists and th theologians that focus on uh, Mary that really kind of come up with this stuff other than me. So it's not something I came up with. Um, and it's stuff that's, again, just been promoted kind of throughout the history of the church. So um, I use notes when I speak, because if I don't use notes, we'd be here for three hours, because I'm an extrovert, and I talk, and I like to talk. So, um, so that's, why I use, that's why I use notes when I speak. So, um, so in the document, uh, Marialis Cultus, which is the right ordering of development of devotion to the Virgin, Blessed Virgin Mary, Blessed Pope Paul says this about devotion to Mary in the biblical text. He says, devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary cannot be exempt from this general orientation of Christian piety. Indeed, it should draw inspiration in a special way from this orientation in order to gain new vigor and sure help. In its wonderful presentation of God's plan for man's salvation, the Bible is replete with the mystery of the Savior. And from Genesis to the book of Revelation also contains clear references to Mary, who was the mother and associate of the Savior. End quote. The letter, The Virgin Mary in Intellectual and Spiritual Formation, written by the Congregation for Catholic Education in 1988, when speaking about the exegetical research focused on Mary, says... Biblical exegesis has opened new frontiers for Mariology, ever dedicating more attention to the intertestimonial literature. Some texts of the Old Testament, and especially the New Testament parts of Luke and Matthew on the infancy of Jesus and the Jonian periscopes, have been the object of continuous and deep study, the results of which have reinforced the biblical basis of Mariology and considerably enriched its themes." End quote. And then lastly, Pope Benedict XVI in his apostolic exhortation Verbum Domine, which I've spoken about here during this series, states the following about Mariology in the Word of God. Benedict says, The Synod Fathers declared that the basic aim of the Twelfth Assembly was to renew the Church's faith in the Word of God. To do so, we need to look to the one in whom the interplay between the Word of God and faith was brought to perfection that is, to the Virgin Mary. I would encourage scholars as well as, to, as well as others to study the relationship between Mariology and the theology of the Word. 
This could prove most beneficial both for the spiritual life and for the theological and for theological and biblical studies. Indeed, what the understanding of the faith has enabled us to know about Mary stands at the heart of the Christian truth. So I think we, when we think about Mary in the Old Testament, uh, might, this might seem like a foreign concept uh, to think about the Blessed, Mer- Blessed Virgin Mary in the Old Testament. Um, but if you study the scriptures properly uh, and you understand what the church is teaching, um, you're going to see Mary in the Old Testament. Like many of the Christian teachings and mysteries, the doctrines and devotions of the Blessed Virgin Mary have their roots in the scriptures. So we think about like the sacraments, the understanding the sacraments are in the scriptures, the understanding of churches in the scriptures. So kind of like the seeds are in the scriptures and then those, those, um, those uh, doctrines and dogmas, they developed over the centuries. Same thing we see happening with, with the teachings on Mary as well. Um, with the Holy Spirit directing the church, the church fathers helped develop these teachings to what we have today. As I said at the beginning, a lot of this, a lot of what the terminology that we use with Mary really was developed in those first really six, seven centuries with the early church fathers. Um, they were the ones that really kind of opened this up um, uh, in, in our understanding of Mary, not just, not just theology, theology as a whole, but for sure with the Blessed Mother. Uh, I have a book at home called Mary and the Early Church Fathers which I use a lot on my blogs uh, when I focus on the early church fathers. So there's quite a bit that the early church fathers give to us. Uh, And then if you read the Old Testament correctly, correctly would be through the eyes of the church, you will see that Old Testament is really about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points directly to the coming of Jesus Christ. And we see that first and foremost right in Genesis 3.15 with the first gospel, what's also known as the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, and again, throughout the Old Testament, we see typology, and the ty- typology is persons, places, and events in the Old Testament that foreshadow the coming of Jesus Christ in the New. But not only Jesus Christ, even though all typology in biblical studies focuses on Jesus, you also have these references in, in regards to, to Mary herself as well. And although there are specific verses that speak of this in the Old Testament, this morning I'd like to focus on four Old Testament women who foreshadow the life of Mary and are fulfilled by her in the New Testament. Uh, so these are four women that specifically, and then there's, then there's four other women. So there's eight I'm going to focus, well, four I'm going to specifically focus on, and then there's another four that I'm just going to kind of give you uh, kind of just a, an overview of who, she, who the woman was and kind of um, where, you can, where you can find it in the scriptures. Um, I'm not going to read all the scriptures today because it's just too much to do that in a talk like this, uh, but I am going to just focus on, I'll kind of tell you where they are if you want to read, read about the women uh, in the scriptures, uh, and then, and then kind of do that on your own as well. Okay, so the first one we're going to focus on is Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and you can read about her in Genesis 17, 15 through 27 all of Genesis 18, and then Genesis 21, 1 through 7. So Sarah bears Isaac in old age, in a a miraculous way, because Sarah was considered barren. Mary bears Jesus, although she's not sterile, also in a miraculous way. Sarah is the mother of nations, since Abraham was the father of many nations. And then we see Mary at the crucifix. When Jesus gives her to St. John, she becomes the spiritual mother of all nations. 
Even if people and nations reject Mary, she's still our mother. So this understanding, she's our spiritual mother. So with Sarah, there's the, there's the similarity. She fulfills Sarah in the sense that she bears Jesus in a miraculous way. But then she also becomes uh, the, the spiritual mother of, of all Christians when she's given to St. John. And this is a, this is a point that the early, the early church fathers picked up on very quickly, realizing how important her role is in the life of the church as our intercessor. And in, in, in multiple, um, multiple people this, uh, today that I'm going to speak on, these women, you see this understanding of her, her uh, spiritual motherhood. Uh, which is something that Pope John Paul II used to express quite a bit in a lot of his writings as well. So the second woman is Miriam, uh, and this is, that's the sister of Moses and Aaron. And you can read about uh, Miriam in Exodus 2, 1 through 10, and then also Numbers chapter 12. So Moses represents the law, the Old Testament law and is the mediator of the covenant between God and the Israelites, which, if you look at Exodus chapter 19, focuses on the covenant that once they leave Egypt and they're in the desert and they're there primarily, their primary position was to worship God, um, they form this covenant uh, with, with God. Miriam is also the sister Aaron, who is the first Levitical priest. So there's some serious foreshadowing going on between Miriam and Mary. So you've got Moses, that's the representative of the law, and then Aaron, who is the first of the Levitical priests. And the Levitical priests would be eventually the uh, priesthood that would uh, oversee the temple. They would protect the Ark of the Covenant before they even had the temple. The Levitical priests, and they all descend from Aaron's sons, Aaron and his sons, because they came from the tribe of, of Levite. They were the ones that were chosen after the golden calf. Uh, the sons, really primarily the, the, original, uh, the original sons of all of Israel would have been priests, um, but because they built the golden calf and they, made that, they caused that sin uh, to occur with the golden calf, uh, God then appoints the Levites and Aaron and his sons, and they're the first. So first point with Miriam is that she mediates to the save, she mediates to save the mediator. It was Miriam who put together Pharaoh's daughter and the mother of Moses. His own mother nursed him. So with even, even, though she, even though she lets Moses go, it's Miriam that connects Pharaoh's daughter and, uh, and, the, and, and uh, the mother of Moses. Mary, like Miriam, also meditates to save Jesus when they escape into Egypt. As our spiritual mother, Jesus brings her intercessions and acts as a mediator between us and Jesus. So we see, again, as they, Mary intercedes for our Lord as they escape into Egypt, and then again we see Moses, this, all of this, the whole idea and the whole story with Moses happening in Egypt. Second, Miriam is the closest relative to the lawgiver. So again, Moses, because Jesus fulfills the law, and the priest, Aaron, Jesus becomes the royal high priest. So Christ, uh, remember Matthew 5, 17, I haven't come to abolish the prophets and the law, but I've come to fulfill them. So Jesus establishes this new law with us in the New Testament. And then he also becomes the royal high priest, uh, where the priest would offer sacrifice and would say, the, and so Jesus is not only the victim, but he's also the high priest as well. 
So in the tent of, in the tent of meeting, uh, Miriam is present with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was God's presence among the Israelites, and Mary becomes the new Ark of the Covenant who bears the eternal presence of God. And this I'll touch more on soon on how she resembles, how she's a fulfilling the uh, fulfillment of the new Ark of the Covenant. And then lastly, the name Miriam means bitter, sorrow, and star. In Hebrew, it means Mary. So she represents the sorrow and the bitterness of the state of the Israelites find themselves in Egypt. And then Mary, as the mother of Jesus, has a mission of sorrow that becomes redemptive. She is the co-redemptrix of the new covenant, and she's also known as the star of the sea. So this idea that Mary is co-redeemer is not that she's equal to Jesus, but she's always subordinate to our Lord, but she works with our Lord in the process of redemption. And again, another point, you know, the bitterness that Miriam represents for the Israelites, we see that specifically with Our Lady of Sorrows, uh, which uh, we believe develops in the scriptures where uh, Simeon says, a, Lord, uh, a sword will pierce your heart. That's really where the Our Lady of Sorrows kind of begins. Um, and then we see Our Lady of Sorrows again at the, at the crucifixion as well. There's some amazing uh, art uh, in the East, uh, specifically uh, kind of in, in like, uh, I was looking at it last night because I was talking to a student about it. In the Russian Orthodox, in the Orthodox churches, some of the, um, the art that's there uh, showing Our Lady, in, in the Russian Orthodox, it's the Our Lady of the Seven, the seven Arrows. So it's like the seven... The, uh, the, um, the seven piercings of Mary's heart uh, that she endures um, as, they, as they walk to Calvary. Um, so again, it has to, the, and the sorrowful mother, it's kind of funny, when I write about the sorrowful mother, when I write about Mary as Our Lady of Sorrow, it, it, the, the blog posts explode and they get shared all over the place uh, because of, um, I, I think there's just, there's a, I couldn't tell you because I'm not, I'm not a parent, but... Um, I think there's something that reaches people when they, they see their children suffering, and that's essentially what we see with Mary. She watches Jesus suffer, uh, and, um, and I think it resonates with people. Okay, so the third, the third uh, woman is Deborah, and she's a prophetess and a judge. And you can read about her in Judges 4. Um, so remember, there's the, there's the period of the judges before there was the king, so you get that, um, you get this, uh, you get Deborah. Um, so one of the 12 judges of Israel, she leads an army into battle against General Barak. Into ba- uh, she leads this army, or she leads General Barak into battle, excuse me. Deborah, Deborah helps Barak by attacking Sisera. And then actually another woman, Jael, finally kills him by driving a spike through his head. Um, so Deborah leads General Barak into battle, uh, and then eventually kind of assists with the with kind of a, the represent this 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 spike being driven through this uh, this the other the other general's head. Um, how this and I think if we think about that immediately, how that represents Mary. Mary is the woman in complete uh, enmity with Satan. She participates with Jesus by crushing the head of Satan. 
in Genesis 3.15. So that's, what, that's why Genesis 3.15 is known as the Proto-Evangelium, because it's the first gospel. It's the first place in the entire scripture that we see uh, the foreshadowing of Mary and Jesus, even though we don't see their names in the scriptures, but we know that's the foreshadowing of what's to come of, of what would happen um, re regarding Satan. Um, it's the first, yeah, so, and this is why you often see statues and pictures of the Blessed Mother crushing the head of the serpent. Mary plays an integral role in, in the action of destroying the devil. So you ever, you know, also, there's so many pictures, um, there's so many of the statues and images of Mary crushing the head of the serpent. Um, now, again, it's a movie, uh, but you see in the, uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, Christ do that at one that scene when he's in the garden and the, and the, the snake starts kind of creeping around him and he crushes the head. Um, and then at the end of the Passion, where, that, where Satan's kind of screaming and yelling, again, it's artistic interpretation of a film, in a film, but that screaming, Mary participates uh, in, in that destruction. Um, and it's, you know, and it's an important thing because Genesis 3.15 is important for us because on the first day of the disaster, God promises us that he'll send us a savior. And then the fourth woman I want to focus on is uh, Esther. Uh, she's a queen mother. Uh, Esther, uh, you can read about her actually in Esther 4.16 and 7, 1 through 10. Esther is the queen mother who risks her life and enters the chamber of King Xerxes to save the Jewish people from an unjust law that would kill them. If you've ever seen the movie 300, okay, it's, it's not the most historical accurate movie in the world, um, but uh, 300 is actually the, the Spartans combat King Xerxes. This is the same King Xerxes. Uh, she is very brave, Esther is very brave, and knows that she could be killed for her actions, but still carries on with her mission. Like Judith, she trusts in, the gods, in God's absolute providence, and God's plans may not always be clear and concise, but in the end, he will be our victor. Mary, who becomes the queen mother and mother of Jesus Christ, the king, participates in the mission of redemption with her son. She saves all of humanity from everlasting death and loss. In the Old Testament, the queen was often the king's mother since he had many wives. So we see in uh, that, that derives the understanding of the queen mother, uh, because people will say to us, you'll get probably uh, your non-Catholic friends, well, why do you consider her a queen and why is she always the queen mother? Um, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 2, where... Uh, Bathsheba comes to Solomon. There's three things he does, what Solomon does to his mother. He uh, venerates her, so he bows before her. He coronates her. He puts her to his right. And then she then is able to ask for the prayers of Solomon's brother. So then she becomes the intercessor. So this wasn't particular to, to Judaism, it was particular, it was, it was really something that a lot of the ancient peoples did uh, because of the multiple wives. Now, that's a whole nother talk in and of itself. Why did God allow all these wives? 
Um, it wasn't the primary mission, it probably wasn't the primary plan at first, but he allows it to show that good can come of it. So, um, because Solomon goes crazy with the wives, eventually having 700 of them and, and, 300, and 300 concubines. So, um, now a lot of those, a lot, I'm kind of off topic here, but a lot of those actually were more like political alliances. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he was actually like involved with all 700 of them. So you'd, you'd have to be like Superman to do that. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's, they were more political alliances because, and, and so, so, so not to, so the wives weren't, so I mean, you would see this amongst the pagan people, like the Hittites and the Canaanites, they were doing the same thing as well because they had multiple wives. So, so we believe that Solomon is, we believe that Solomon is, uh, you know, he, Solomon is a Davidic king. He's the son of David. And Christ is also the son of David and fulfills the Davidic kingship. So it makes sense that his mother, then we become his queen. Um, our Lord wasn't married and didn't have wives, but, but, his, but, his, but his mother still becomes the queen mother. So that's really where it derives. It derives in 1 Kings chapter 2. And if you've never read 1 Kings chapter 2, read through 1 Kings chapter 2 because it kind of gives you an understanding of that's what, because he, again, he, he venerates, coronates, and then she intercedes. And that's exactly what Mary does for us. So this understanding of queen mother uh, is a very important element and, and topic to focus on in the Old Testament, and especially in relation to, to, to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then there's other women that are there as well. Uh, Rebecca, who's the wife of Isaac and the mother of Jacob. You've got Rachel, uh, the beautiful wife of Jacob. Uh, Judith, who's also a national Jewish hero and the wife of Manasseh. And then you've got the mother of the Maccabees, the Maccabean, with the Maccabean revolt. Um, those are all other places. Um, I didn't put the scripture verses uh, down uh, for these, but if you're interested in these, you could always just email me. I can send you the scripture verses uh, for these as well. But these are other women. I mean, there's just, and again, I'm, I'm giving you, uh, I'm already almost a half hour into this talk, and, and it's, I'm giving you, you know, smissions of stuff, you know, small pieces of this uh, information, and there's so much more out there that I could talk about. Uh, staying in the Old Testament, I want to focus on Proverbs 31. Uh, because this is an important proverb that uh, we see in the Old Testament and how it reflects to our Blessed Mother. So people will say, how do I read this poem? As it always is with the literal sense of the scriptures, words point to things. And in this case, the literal words are pointing to a woman. This poem is, is modeled after a literal ancient woman. As it is with the spiritual sense, the things, in this case, the ancient woman is pointing to other things or references. First, the woman is pointing to the church. The church is always feminine, for she is the bride and Christ the bridegroom. Church will always remain feminine. Second, the woman is pointing towards Mary, who is closely related to the church, for she cares and intercedes for it, and we shall see this more clearly soon. Third, the woman in this poem is the everyday woman or women in general. And then fourth, the, women, the, uh, the woman points towards wisdom, which in, the scripture, which in the scriptures has a feminine quality to it. 
And lastly, the woman is pointing towards lady wisdom, which in turn points to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit who directs and guides the church. Proverbs 31 uh, incarcerates all of the other Proverbs. All the other Proverbs are kind of brought to conclusion in Proverbs 31. Uh, This Hebrew poem is an exalted point for women in the scriptures, for we see the ideal women Uh, we see the ideal woman that runs throughout. What also runs through this poem is a strong nuptial or marriage theme that we see specifically in verse 10 when the question is, who can find a good wife? She is more precious than jewels. Uh, In regards to that, um, the marriage nuptial is something that we, uh, the marriage theme uh, is something that we see that runs through the entire scriptures. Uh, that, that theme runs from, from Genesis to Revelation as well, uh, especially as Christ is, becomes the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Uh, but there's so many, that's, again, that's another talk in and of itself, all the nuptial um, scripture verses that have to do with marriage uh, and the importance of marriage in, in the life of the, 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 life of the, the, uh, the Christian and the, the church. This good wife is a woman. And that's actually in Hebrew is eshef, eshef, and then valor. So she becomes the woman of valor. It's the eshef yahil, is the woman of valor. She's not a warrior maiden, but a mother of valor, an image we can clearly see the Blessed Virgin Mary holding. So she becomes like this great, we see the great woman here in Proverbs 31. When we think of the word force or valor, our mind automatically thinks of battle or a fight. But this is not what the sacred author is giving to us. The woman in Proverbs 31 is not a warrior. She's the ideal wife and mother. Um, So I think when we, again, when we think of valor, we think of force, we think of that she's going to battle. But that's not what this woman is about. Uh, Because this has to do with the ideal, with women in general and the ideal woman, um, again, it focuses on, on not the warrior sense, but that she's, that she's ideal as wife and mother. The sacred author, possibly King Solomon himself, is challenging our assumptions of valor and heroism. The woman of Proverbs 31 is a woman who is faithful to her daily duties and performs them well without complaint. The woman who does this is the witness of true valor and heroism. Um, you know, and I, I think this is this idea that the church oppresses women, the church uh, doesn't give women its due. Um, if you look at the scriptures itself, Mary, I mean, I don't know how you cannot say this. I mean, Mary is the highest. We consider the Blessed Virgin Mary the highest creature of all creatures, and she's a woman. Um, so, uh, you know, and we've got these ancient, these Old Testament women that are foreshadowing Mary, and there's lots of them. Uh, and then obviously there's this whole, this whole uh, proverb, Proverb 31, that focuses on this woman of valor uh, and the great woman. So I, I think when people say that the church oppresses, they don't really have any idea what they're talking about. Uh, because I, think there's, I, I don't think uh, there's a really a good understanding of, oh, the church doesn't let them do this, doesn't do that. Well, there's specific missions that men and women have in the world and in the church. Uh, so this understanding that we have that the church oppresses. For one of my blog posts, I talked about St. Catherine of Siena. 
uh, and it was this uh, St. Catherine, I said, uh, St. Catherine of Siena told the Pope to go back to Rome after 70 years. Okay, so if you don't know the story, St. Catherine of Siena told the Pope they were in Avignon, France. They were the Avignon Papacy. She's the one that told the Pope, you need to go back to Rome. So that was one of my memes. It was like, if you think the church oppresses women, Catherine of Siena kind of put her foot kind of down uh, and said, you got to go back to Rome. You don't belong here. So, so it was a woman that actually got the Pope to go back to Rome after 70 years in France. Okay, so now that we kind of have a basic understanding of this poem, let us turn our gaze to how the Blessed Virgin Mary fulfills Proverbs 31. And there's quite a few references in this poem. So... There's a lot more than just these three with Mary, but these are specifically the three I wanted to focus on. So in verse 15, it says that she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and tasks for her maidens. Here we see Mary as the morning star, which rises while others are still sleeping. As the morning star, she is Christ's true herald of his word to the church, the world, and all who hear it. Uh, a represent, you know, that's another idea of Mary as the morning star. Uh, we see that specifically in coastal towns, uh, co towns that are on oceans. Uh, I remember there's a, there's the church, there's the morning, uh, was it morning star? Well, it's in San, one of the churches in San Francisco when I was there in college. It's still there. Is is uh, it's named Morning Star because it represents Mary as the star that rises in the morning that guides people to it, uh, kind of, and that's for for sailors. Um, that's kind of the, the, the understanding that as they are in the sea, they're sailing towards the coast. Mary is leading them home. Verse 20, uh, it professes, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. The Blessed Mother, as the Queen of Heaven, cares for the spiritually poor. She brings the needs of the faithful to Jesus Christ as mediatrix, which the grace flows from her hands. The grace initially comes from Jesus Christ himself, but Mary has the ability to dispense the grace that Christ gives to us to the faithful. That's where our, late, our understanding of Our Lady of Grace comes from, that that's, that's what she does in Our Lady of, as Our Lady of Grace, is that, again, as co-redemptrix, again, she's not equal to Jesus, but she's subordinate to our Lord, she has the ability in that mission to give us the grace. It comes from Christ and Christ alone. That's where the grace comes from. The grace of the sacraments comes from Jesus Christ. But Mary, in her redemptive mission that she has with Jesus as the mediatrix and as co-redeemer, which again are terms that come from the early church fathers, um, she has the ability to dispense us and give us that grace. And then the last verse is verse 31, and it states, give her of the fruit of her hands and let her work praise and hurt in the gates. Here we see the evolution of Christians towards their mother. As, Christ, as Christians, she brings, our, her, she brings her children's needs to the gates of heaven. So again, we see Mary's role as an intercessor uh, here as well. She brings what we, um, what we desire directly to our Lord. Now, it's not like you can't go directly to Jesus. You can but having that understanding of intercessory prayer, especially from the queen mother, it's usually the king would not deny his mother um, if it was in the will of the king, just like it's in the will of God. If it's in the will of God, 
Jesus won't deny his mother something that we ask, as long as it's still within his divine, divine economy. Um, you know, if we're asking Mary to, to give us, to help us win the lottery, that may not necessarily happen, you know. Um, but if, if, she, if you're asking for prayers, as long as it's within God's divine will and divine economy, uh, uh, she, uh, I believe uh, uh, that she won't be denied by Jesus. Okay, so let's focus on Mary in the New Testament. Thinking that many of you have at least a basic understanding of Mary's role in the infancy narratives in the Gospel of Luke, which we could spend, that's a whole nother, that's, I, see I got, I've given you like three or four different talks I could give just in this talk. That's a whole nother talk looking at the infancy narratives in Luke. I'm going to focus on other New Testament scripture passages. If you're interested in those scripture passages, you can read my blog post called Mary in the New Testament 1, or part 1. So the wedding feast at Cana, important, important, important. Uh, if you're interested in reading, if you have never read that, read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I'll say that John chapter 1 represents or, or reflects, mirrors Genesis, the creation story in Genesis. If you look at John chapter 1, there's actually four days in John chapter 1, and then they pick up at the seventh day at the wedding feast of Cana. I think John chapter 2, on the third day, they were at, you know, they were at the, they start to, uh, John starts to explain the wedding feast at Cana. So in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, there's seven days, the seven days of creation. Just like in Genesis, at the end of Genesis, Genesis 2.23, you see the, uh, the seven days of creation, and you see a bride, you see Adam and Eve, a bride and a groom. Well, here we have the same thing with Mary as the, as the bride, or as the, not as the bride, excuse me, as the new Eve, and Christ as the new Adam. So the wedding feast of Cana has a dual meaning. First, we clearly see the maternal mediation of the Blessed Virgin Mary and her relationship with Jesus Christ. As you know, the wedding that Jesus, Mary, and some of the apostles attended happens to run out of wine. The mother of Jesus, Mary, intercedes for the couple, giving the grace of Jesus Christ, again, as her role as mediatric begins to develop here, through the miracle of turning water into wine. She is the maternal mediator at the wedding, and during the crucifixion of Jesus, she will become the maternal mediator for all of humanity. So as she mediates for the couple that's out of wine, she begins to become our maternal mediator at the cross. So again, there's that intercessor. I'll answer questions at the end. So, um, uh, so she becomes, um, she becomes uh, that, that mediator uh, at the wedding feast at Cana and then again at the cross. Um, the second meaning behind this miracle and the, and the grace that flows from it is that it's the first public miracle of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, O woman, what do you have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's essentially saying two things. First, using the term woman is not meant to be demeaning. He's simply connecting Mary with the woman in Genesis 3.15. The same woman who would be at his side at Calvary in John 19.25 and the woman who would be crowned and glorified in heaven as the queen of heaven and earth in Revelation. So we see this connection um, 
And I think a lot of people think it's demeaning that he calls her woman. Uh, Fulton Sheen, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, talks about in his book, um, the, uh, this, the, last word, the seven last words of Jesus and Mary, that if he calls her mother, uh, specifically on the cross, that he's saying she's just his mother and that, that she doesn't have the ability to be all of ours, uh, to be all of humanity's mother. Uh, and again, it's, it's that, and woman is again to connect it to Genesis 3.15 because Eve brings death where Mary then now brings life. Um, she becomes, which I'm not talking about that today, but that's another whole thing we can go into as, as, the new, as Mary is the new Eve, since, since Jesus is the new Adam, Mary then becomes the new Eve. Second, the question he asks in reference to Calvary. Jesus is saying if he performs this public miracle today, if he does this miracle, his public mission and the path to Calvary begins. And this, this is where Calvary starts. This is, where, this is where the walk to Calvary begins, is at, um, at, uh, at the wedding feast of Cana. Mary's do whatever he tells you is her response and readiness to walk with Jesus to Calvary. So she doesn't say, oh, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll backtrack on that. Maybe they don't need wine. Uh, maybe we can find wine somewhere else. No, she says, do whatever he tells you. This would begin the redemption of mankind and Christ as the suffering servant professed in Isaiah. That's specifically Isaiah 52, uh, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. So we see that understanding that Jesus then becomes the suffering servant. So we got, again, this dual meaning where you've got her as maternal mediator, mediating for this, this couple. That, now, it, it would be embarrassing for the couple you know, to, loot, to, to run out of wine. Uh, because Jewish weddings, we go, we, we have, our wedding receptions are like four hours, five hours. Not in the old, not, not, in, the, not in these early centuries. Jewish uh, weddings uh, receptions could last days, could last a week. People might go home, sleep, uh, get some rest, and go back and keep on, you know, celebrating and partying. The, 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 the bride and the groom might go sleep for a while, and they come back. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. So the run out of wine would have been an embarrassing thing for this couple. So Mary, seeing that and realizing that, then becomes the maternal mediator, which is her role for all of us. Um, and again, Calvary then begins. So if you ever wonder where Calvary starts, it's here. Uh, and again, it's so just like they're together here in, at Cana, we see them together at Calvary as well. So then we see, we focus on Mary's presence in the upper room. And this is Acts chapter 1, verses 13 through uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 4. So after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, we see Mary in the upper room waiting with the apostles for the coming of the Holy Spirit who was Mary's divine spouse. She is the central figure in the upper room, as well as in the life of the infant church. Uh, she, as she held the infant Jesus in her arms, close to her heart and feeding him, she holds the infant church in the same respect. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the nurturer of the early church throughout the power of the Holy Spirit. And so and then for, a more, for a deeper understanding of this, uh, Mary in the life of the church, I would ask you to read, or you could read uh, on my Mondays with Mary series on my blog, is um, Mary uh, is the church on Pentecost. 
So having, I go into more detail in regarding how she fulfills that role as, um, as the, the heart of the church. And, and if, you look at, if you look at these, these, um, these uh, this icon, this Eastern icon, we see the apostles and we see there Mary in the center. Most art that, has to foc- that focuses on Pentecost, that's what this looks like. Mary's always at the center uh, of the church. Uh, even though uh, Peter becomes the head of the church uh, and our first pope, um, while she's here on earth, she kind of becomes the central heartbeat of the church. Um, uh, you know, and the colors also, the colors represent in this image, she's in a lot of red, uh, which represents the sorrow and the, the blood of Christ. And we then we see hints of blue. Uh, this is a different, this is... Um, uh, just a different picture or different icon, different colors in it. Usually we see her in a lot of blue with, with small pieces of red. Um, and it's just, she becomes that, she, I mean, and she's still, that's her figure, that's her role still in the church today. Um, she's kind of the, the life center of the church. Um, I mean, Christ is the, the heart of it, obviously, but she kind of pumps that blood uh, through the body. Uh, she's the one that, uh, with the intercession of the Holy Spirit, continues to guides and guide and helps the church because she meet, she's mediating not just for our own individual prayers, but then also just for the as the church herself. She becomes the mother mother of the church. Now we focus on let's focus on Revelation. Uh, you could read Revelation chapter twelve verse one. Here we see the woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. The woman is in battle with the ancient foe, Satan. The woman refers to Mary because Mary only gives birth to the male child, and he will have the scepter of ruling the people. And Mary is the mother of the church, but uniquely is the mother of Jesus. Uh, first, being clothed with the sun means that she is veiled in intimacy with the sun. Second, the moon under her feet means that the moon reflects the light of the sun without being its source and without dulling the rays. She's not the source of the light, but its reflection. This is the perfect image of Our Lady. That's why this understanding of the moon, because the moon represents, when the moon, when we look at it at night, it does not have its own ability to to give that light off. It's just shine, it's the, the light from the moon is coming from the sun. That's why we use that representation of Mary uh, being the moon, because she doesn't have her own ability to... uh, So, like, it has to do with the great, like, being Our Lady of Grace. She doesn't have the ability to give grace herself, but she's able to dispense the grace which comes from Jesus, just like the light of the sun then reflects upon the moon. Third, she's crowned with 12 stars. Here we see her as the queen mother of the male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron rod. An iron rod was a scepter. A king would always carry a scepter, uh, kind of a representation of of his kingship. Um, The 12 tribes of Jacob, who were ruled by King David, are fulfilled in the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, the new David, and the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. Fourth, the battle with Satan is the cosmic battle for all souls. Mary is God's greatest creature, and Satan is his most despised creature, just like we see in Genesis 3.15. And again, we see complete enmity between the woman 
and Satan. Uh, so this understanding of, you know, again, we, we, we think about maybe your non-Catholic friends will say, well, where is she the queen mother? Well, we specifically see her as a queen here. Obviously, 1 Kings chapter 2 is, begins that understanding of the queen mother. But then in Revelation, it's specifically, I mean, who, has a crown, who wears a crown and is a woman? Usually a queen uh, has a crown. Um, and, uh, you know, we see some of these images also in, um, in some of the Marian apparitions. Uh, now, in this, in Revelation, she's clothed with the sun, which means that she's, you know, the intimacy with Jesus and the moon's under her feet since she's reflecting. Uh, but we also see in the Marian apparitions, like specifically, I'm thinking like Our Lady of Guadalupe, where the, where the rays, she's standing on the moon. Now, there, she's standing on the moon and she's blocking out the sun with her, you know, her, her, her appearance is blocking out the sun because the two big gods in the Aztec world was the sun god and the moon god. So she's in, in Our Lady of Guadalupe, in that sense, she is then saying, we, my son and I, because she's with child as Our Lady of Guadalupe, we uh, are more powerful than your gods, than your sun god and then your moon god. Um, so again, that's, 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 less, that's, that's more private, le- private, re- that's private revelation because um, it's a Marian apparition. Uh, but again, that's, that's something that we see um, in Our Lady of Guadalupe. Okay. Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. So I talked about, I, I would, said I would share this with you. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, which were written on stone tablets. These were actually the second version of the Ten Commandments because Moses destroys the first Ten Commandments. Uh, by throwing the tablets at the, uh, at the, at the uh, golden calf. Uh, you can read, read about the second version in Deuteronomy 10.5. Uh, also in the ark was a gold vessel, essentially a similar to like a ciborium, where that held the manna that fed the Israelites in the desert. And you can see that in Exodus 16.34. And then also the staff of Aaron that blossomed. You can read about that uh, Hebrews, actually, Hebrews 9.4 speaks about Aaron's staff that blossomed. So the Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, the man in the desert, the bread from heaven that fed the Israelites, and then the staff of Aaron, which was the symbol of the high priest. In the New Testament, Mary, the Virgin of Nazareth, becomes the new Ark of the Covenant. The new covenant, or testament, is a covenant that is everlasting between God and all of humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. Mary becomes the sacred vessel, for she is immaculately created by God to carry God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Mary is the Theotokos. She's the God-bearer. And that's a term that you see in the east, eastern side of the church, the eastern lung of the church, or in the Orthodox Church, that she is the Theotokos, God-bearer, that she actually bore God in her womb. Just as the original ark was layered with gold, a precious metal that does not fade, so Mary, the new ark of the covenant, through her immaculate conception, would not fade. At the Annunciation, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, the new ark of the covenant, just as the Shechaniah overshadowed the ark of the covenant. The Shechaniah was God's presence. So when God's presence would come upon the Ark of the Covenant, that's, the, that's, that's what we see, the presence of God. Then we see the Holy Spirit overshadowing, overshadowing Mary. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the articles that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. He's the new law. So Jesus is the word incarnate. He's the incarnate word. He's, you know, in, in bodily form, the word of God. He is the new law. What's that new law? The, the Beatitudes. He gives us a whole new law. So the Beatitudes are really a fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. So we see Jesus fulfilling the new law. He becomes the new law. Again, Matthew 5, 17. I did not, I, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And the law is specifically the original Ten Commandments, not all those 634 other laws that were added to the Ten Commandments because the Israelites kept messing up and Moses kind of kept adding laws. So the original law is the Ten Commandments. Um, he's the fulfillment of the manna that came down from heaven that fed the Israelites. As the manna came down from heaven to feed the Israelites, Jesus himself says in John 6, your ancestors ate in the manna, the manna in the desert, the bread that came down from heaven, but they died. And I am the new bread of life that, came, that comes down from heaven. And then obviously that's the foreshadowing. John 6, as Catholics, we should all know that John 6 is the foreshadowing of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, that we will see Jesus give to us in Luke 22. And then he's also the fulfillment of the staff of Aaron, because Aaron was the first high priest of the Levitical priesthood, and then Jesus becomes the eternal and royal high priest. So Mary, as that's why we consider her as the new Ark of the Covenant, um, because she's immaculate, she's overshadowed, uh, and then you've got all of those three. You've got the Word, new law, the bread of life, and Jesus is the new high priest. So he fulfills the Levitical priesthood, and then our priesthood, the Catholic priesthood, really is the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. Um, where, where, um, and that, a lot of that, if you want to really learn or read about a lot of that, read Hebrews, because Hebrews goes into a lot of that explanation. Uh, the author of Hebrews, uh, who I believe is St. Paul, although there's people that will disagree that it's St. Paul and there's the theologians and scripture scholars go back and for forth with it. Someone who knew, um, knew uh, the life of Judaism very well wrote Hebrews. It was, and, it, I, and I believe it was St. Paul. The reason people don't, people don't think it was St. Paul is because there's a, a kind of a higher level of writing that happened in Hebrews than in some of the other letters. But it's like, I, I think about this as myself, my blog is kind of written to people that may have a limited understanding of their faith, and it's not like, but it's different than an academic paper that I would write in grad school. So I, can, I know how to write two different ways. There's ways to write kind of towards for people that don't get it, or people that have a limited understanding or a basic understanding, or when I'm writing to, one, you know, if I was writing a master's dissertation or a PhD dissertation, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a higher level of writing. Okay, so in his essay, the mystery of the Blessed Virgin, uh, the mystery of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Old Testament, Father Stefano Manelli states, "Mary is she who bears in herself not the Word of God written on stone, the tablets of the law, but the very Word of God, the Logos made flesh, become her Son, who carries in herself not the flowering rod of Aaron, but the flower of Jesse." who carries in herself not the manna, figure of the Eucharist, but the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Eucharistic Christ, adored by the golden cherubim. As the Ark of the Covenant was a sign of God's protection in the Old Testament for the Israelites and was carried into battle at times, 
so too the new Ark of the Covenant should be the true sign of God's presence in the world and protecting the church militant here on earth as we battle Satan, the evil he proposes, and those who attack the Catholic Church. So um, I hope today was uh, helpful for you, kind of gave you some insight into uh, Mary and the sacred scriptures, uh, and that you're able to use some of it uh, to, uh, to your advantage um, when you're talking with your non-Catholic friends. Um, so and just to kind of conclude here, uh, my Mondays with Mary is something that I uh, have written on quite a bit. Uh, there's over 200, well, there's over 200, I think there's like 213 Mondays with Mary that I've written since May of 2012. And you can find that on tomperna.org, which is my personal website and blog. Um, today's presentation came from 72, 73, 76, 79, and 107. So those are specifically ones that I... I drew from. Um, I also, on that blog, do a thing on, called Quick Lessons from the Catechism, where I focus kind of quickly on what the Catechism teaches on certain topics. And then I also have something on the Doctors of the Church as well, uh, all 36 doctors. I've written on them as well. Mondays with Mary has actually been turned into a book. Uh, I've got the manuscript at the diocese uh, waiting for ecclesiastical approval. And then also there's a publisher that's looking at it right now to see if they want to publish it uh, through, through their publishing company. Um, but again, I focus on the saints. I talk about the angels. It's mostly all things Catholic, uh, which is, and then every once in a while, well, like tomorrow, I'm going to repost something I did for 9-11 a few years ago. Um, so I, I'll do stuff like that. A lot of stuff on John Paul II. I use a lot of JP2's writings. Benedict because um, Benedict and JP2 have so much, so much, uh, there's so much material there. You spend a lifetime reading through JP2 and Benedict and probably not get through all of it. So those are the things I kind of do on my blog. So if you haven't checked that out, feel free to check out that blog uh, each week.